0: Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days. And let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's my joy and privilege this morning to share God's word with you. We are uh, continuing in our season of uh, epiphany, and we are celebrating the, the recognition of God as he sent Jesus Christ as healer and miracle worker and son of God to display his glory throughout every place in the nation of Israel. We've been looking over the last few weeks how Jesus not only did a sign or a wonder, but that it communicated something about himself in the way that he did what he did. Last week, we saw Jesus call His disciples by doing a great miracle of causing no fish to be found the prior night, and then a great catch of fish to be caught the next day. And in that miracle, He did another miracle, which was opening up Simon's eyes to to his great need for Jesus Christ. And so, as we continue in this season of Epiphany, we're recognizing that Christ did not just come as the incarnate Son of God and keep His glory hidden in a corner. No, He revealed Himself, and through what He did, He showed people their need for Him. So, Jesus is traveling around through Galilee, displaying His power over sickness and disease that they might see His glory. In all of these accounts, Jesus is seen as the Messiah, the one anointed with power. When Peter preaches at the conversion of the Gentiles in Cornelius' household in Acts 10, we hear him say, you yourselves, you Gentiles, know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. You see, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not just a manifestation of the plan of God, but through his ministry, he reveals the nature of God, that the Father has sent him on a mission, and the Father has equipped him with the Holy Spirit to accomplish that mission. Jesus, Peter says, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. As we've been seeing, and it's my aim to show this year in Epiphany, that Christ's glory is not just seen in what He does, but how He does it. The manner of it, His Spirit that He, that he uh, operates in as He performs it, not just referring to the Holy Spirit, but His Spirit of meekness and mildness as He does what is necessary to bring about an, an intended effect But it is not just miracles that Jesus is doing. He is also, by his miracles, teaching something about what he really came to do. In this account, therefore, Jesus not only wields great power over sickness, but in doing so is teaching something about the destitute nature of man's condition in his sin. Through these miraculous encounters, God is showing, through what his Son is doing, That men, if they are to overcome sin, they must recognize that they are unable to do so in their own, but rather come to Christ. Men in sin, all men from Adam, are totally unable to recover from sin. It is not a sickness like a cold from which they will be restored apart from a miracle. Their inability to come to Christ apart from God's grace is clearly seen. Jesus is not just doing something in Luke chapter 5, God is telling a story also in Luke chapter 5. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together through the recording of the uh, events to communicate something to His people about their need for Jesus Christ. Jesus does not just come to be the miracle worker to deliver a few people in Israel in the region of Galilee. No, he comes to recover all men who would come to him for healing from their sin, not just leprosy or external blindness, but blindness of the spirit and blindness of the soul. God is causing and calling his son to do these things so that all people might come to Jesus Christ for complete healing. To that end, I want to look at this passage in four dimensions or four aspects of the story, moving through the story in a linear way. First, I want to look at what this fully leprous man is, that he is not just given a description of a problem, but that Luke is drawing upon a very biblically concrete idea that this man was not just mostly leprous, but fully leprous, and what that means, biblically speaking. I want to look at how Jesus Christ conquers the temptation of, as his fame is spreading, how he restores his own soul, walking as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit, by communing with God in private prayer. How Jesus Christ not only has his glory shown, but then he avoids the temptations that would have accompanied such a glory being spread. I want to look at what it means for the paralyzed man to be forgiven, and the very perplexing way that Jesus, in the midst of doing a healing, is teaching as he works wonders. And then the Pharisees questioning how they are silently questioning and doubting in their hearts, and Jesus again knows the thoughts and intentions of their hearts and calls them to account. Throughout God's revelation, in every place in the Scripture in which it's mentioned, leprosy is always connected with uncleanness. If someone has a leprous disease or a touch of affliction, they are considered to be under the displeasure or disfavor of God. This disease caused them to be separated from the rest of the community. We know in the Gospels how when Jesus heals other lepers, that before he heals them, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean. Now, that's not given in the law. That was a tradition or a practice of the people. But it had two prior reasons. One is if that leper did not follow the procedure, he would have less chance of being restored. But likewise, he did not want to... uh, 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 you know, pollute the people of God. He didn't want the, the people of God to be tainted in such a way as the whole community couldn't come before God's presence. In the book of Leviticus, some of you are arriving at Leviticus in your Bible year goals. Stick with it. There's deep and powerful things in Leviticus. Leviticus. In Leviticus, entire chapters are given to explain the nature of identifying, cleansing, quarantine, and the restoration process for leprosy. As it's translated into the English, more than 3,000 words are spent describing what leprosy is, what is to be done about it, how it is to be cleansed or or, uh, observed by the priest. And how one might make an atonement offering or a a reconciliation offering should he or she be healed from that disease. God is going to great pains in the book of Leviticus to explain what he means by this symbol, this living message of leprosy. Having leprosy was a sign, as we said, of God's displeasure. It's a mark on a person of the curse which, comes with, which accompanies disobedience. God tells the Egyptian uh, tells the Israelites that as He's taking them out of Egypt, that they should keep the Passover and follow His laws, and He promises, I will put on you none of the diseases which I afflicted the Egyptians with. One of those diseases, as you may remember, was boils and skin diseases. And God is saying something about those who receive leprosy or, or experience leprosy in his people. He's saying that this is a visible picture of what it means to disobey God's law. Luke's description of this man as fully leprous, therefore, is highly significant. It is not a light thing that Luke is describing. In, uh, in verse 12, it says, while he was in, excuse me, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. In the way he records it, I just think it's an interesting fact that Luke doesn't say this man was seeking out Christ. It just says that the man came. There came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Upon seeing Jesus, this fully leprous man falls down to beg for healing from the one who he believes can heal him. Through the fullness of this leprosy, we see in a picture that this man is totally corrupt. By that, I do not mean he's been perverted by outside influences. I mean who he is in his sin. It is total corruption. Sin has spread throughout and affected every part of his whole life. By his actions of falling down on his face as a beggar, he confesses his total inability to cleanse himself. And by his speech, we see his total confidence. There are three things that this fully leprous man does. By being fully leprous in who he is, we see total corruption. We see him confess his total inability, and we also see him at the same time express total confidence if you will, you can. I try to refrain from making references to my daughter because it's just a little bit uncouth sometimes to constantly be showering praise on your daughter or any of your kids, but I can't help it at this moment. (laughs) My daughter's begun to say this phrase, daddy, if you want to, we can play with this. Now, the reason I bring this up is because she, she gets it, that daddy and mommy set the rules. It's our will that rules the home. Amen? If, if we're allowed to, we can do this. This man is coming to Jesus and saying, if you, if you have mercy on me, you can do it. You, you can do this, Jesus. If you, if you will to heal me, you will heal me. You have the power, you have the ability to heal me if you would just be willing. This is what the fully leprous man is teaching, total confidence, not in himself, not in his ability to come and find Jesus, but in Jesus' ability and power. If Jesus would just be willing, he can be healed. Luke's recording of this fact that the man is fully leprous is not biblically insignificant. In those 3,000 words that I mentioned of Leviticus that deal with leprosy, a very perplexing law or description is given concerning those who are fully leprous. After describing those people who have leprosy or have a little bit of uh, pink flesh in the middle of leprosy, Leviticus goes on to describe in chapter 13 and verses 12 and 13 something that is quite perplexing. It says, if the leprous Disease breaks out in the skin, so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see. Then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has turned all white, and he's clean. If, if you're not perplexed by that. You need to read it again. If the person has leprosy so that they're totally leprous, then they're not unclean anymore. If you've got 99% leprosy, you're unclean. When you get to 100% leprosy, you're clean again. We wouldn't tell a cancer patient, your cancer is progressing along, but if it goes to the full, you'll be fine. It doesn't make any sense the totality of this person's leprosy is being used by God to explain something about the nature of sin and defilement. He has great abandon and willingness to come to Christ. Jesus, I think, keys in on this in his account with the man who's born blind. At the end of that account, after healing the man born blind and disputing with the Pharisees who maintain that they see and yet he says, you don't see me. Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. That's what Leviticus is pointing to. Unlike those Pharisees who say they're not blind when they really are blind, this man has full knowledge of his disease. Though he might be ceremonially clean, according to the Levitical code, he's not fully healed. A a person who is fully leprous is Levitically clean or ceremonially clean. But that Levitical code was speaking prophetically. That code was speaking prophetically of those who, like this man, recognize their great need for Jesus who alone can save and heal. In verse 13, it says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus heals this man, touching him and proclaiming healing over him. In those days, to touch a leper made one, according to the Levitical code, a leper in temporary or, or a, a, a leper in ceremonial perspective, that if you were to touch a leper or, for example, to touch a dead body, you could not come into the temple or the synagogue. You had to wait a period of time after watching because God is teaching the Israelites a separation between clean and unclean, which can, that which can come before God and that which cannot come before God. Luke here details that Jesus stretched out his hand, very reminiscent of exactly God's salvation from, uh, of, Egypt, of Israel from Egypt. In Psalm 136 verse 12, we hear that God delivered Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Jesus is doing something While he's doing this miracle, he's teaching about himself being the mighty deliverer, the one to accomplish the exodus, the one who can bring a fully leprous man out of his Levitical cleanliness, external cleanliness to real cleanliness. This man goes from fully leprous to immediately clean, from ceremonially clean to actually restored though jesus himself is the true atonement and the true temple jesus instructed this man to fulfill the law of god as a proof to israel in verse 14 it says and he charged him to tell no one but go and show yourself to the priest make an offering for your cleansing as moses commanded for a proof to them we have to ask the question at this point if we're in the season of epiphany and we're celebrating the glory of jesus spreading throughout the land Why is it that Jesus instructs this man to keep the miracle a secret? Shouldn't Jesus desire that God be glorified by more people hearing about the miracle? Think about this. If if a miracle of this nature took place in today's church, even in our church, we would be on Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat instantaneously, and we would set up a little Facebook event for a healing service the next weekend. Jesus is doing something very perplexing here. He's saying to this man, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. Just go privately to the temple. Go privately and make an offering according to the law of Moses, because the law of Moses for the ceremonial provisions is still in effect. Jesus is saying, go do those things so that they would have a proof given to them. Why does Jesus tell him not to proclaim and tell exactly what he's done? I think it is this, and we know this from other places in the Gospels, as we'll see in just a minute, that Jesus is unwilling to allow his fame and the glory which comes from men to him to outpace the necessary time for which his public ministry is required. Over and over again, when Jesus Christ does a miracle, the glory and fame of him spreads throughout the land. And at times, as we'll see in a minute, this actually causes a great tragedy or a great disaster. Verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad. Jesus didn't get his way in a sense. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Notice Luke doesn't say he did withdraw. It says he would withdraw, implying a pattern and a way of life. Jesus' glory in this chapter is seen not only in what he did, but here in his humility and the meekness of his obedience as he again conquers the temptation to pride. Jesus Christ knew this temptation quite well. In the temptation that Satan brought in the wilderness, which we'll study here in the season of Lent that's coming up, Jesus conquered the temptation that Satan presented him with, that temptation being to receive the kingdoms of men apart from the obedient sacrifice and suffering of the cross. If you're not familiar with the story, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, as Luke records. I take it to be that this was some sort of spiritual transaction, that, that, that Satan didn't fly Jesus around to see the kingdoms of the world, but that in a picture or in a sense, they're doing battle in the wilderness, and it is a spiritual warfare of the first degree, not, not the things that we call, you know not getting our way or being perplexed or tempted. This was real spiritual warfare. Jesus is demolishing Satan's temptations by quoting the Word of God, that Word of God having already been treasured within him. And Jesus says to Satan, No, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God alone. That was the temptation that he faced and he overcame it in those moments, and he still overcame it in these moments. In all of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus was led by the Spirit to do that which he saw the Father doing. We see this in John 5, 9. Jesus here not only did a miracle of cleansing a leper, but he did a further miracle in demonstrating his glory and his righteousness. Jesus overcame this temptation at this moment, to be seen as great by his countrymen according to the blessings which he provided. Jesus was not willing to win the people's heart, that is, the kingship of Israel, apart from the obedience which the Father required. In John 6, 15, we see Jesus do the exact opposite of what Absalom did. If you remember, Absalom was the son of David, and it said he would when people would come to meet with David, he would interpose and give them a favorable judgment or a favorable word. And it says, and thus he stole the hearts of Israel. Jesus is unwilling at this point to receive the hearts of Israel apart from the obedience which the father requires. In John 6, 15, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by Himself. Jesus did not just do this with the fully leprous man. He did this at all times, in all seasons of life. Beyond just ministerial effectiveness, Jesus loved to be with the Father. As Christians, we are called to walk as Jesus walked, We are not just called to see Jesus' glory and be content with His glory being seen. No, we're told by Paul that seeing the glory of the Lord, we are being changed. And in seeing the glory and honor that Jesus Christ lives with, we have to ask ourselves, how can we imitate Him in this manner? The question that I ask of myself and our people the question I, that I think this text asks of us is how can we escape to prayer as a respite from man's praise when we've not loved prayer as a means of communion with God beforehand? As the Proverbs say, a man is tested by his praise. Jesus wasn't just tempted in the wilderness, he was tempted after every miracle. Perhaps the lack of devotion to God's word and prayer is why our churches in America are so devoid of power. I don't just mean miraculous power. I mean true power to convince of righteousness. How many of us could avoid the temptations which come with such power? I couldn't. I know that. I couldn't yet, and I hope to. And I hope it is your goal as well that you could sustain love for God in the face of such temptations. The question is not seeing Jesus's glory alone. The question is, will we imitate him? Will we give ourselves to private prayer, to loving God first apart from ministerial effectiveness, from loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, whether or not he uses us to advance his kingdom? I believe Jesus Following Jesus demands such an approach. Moving forward to the paralyzed man, Jesus again displays his glory through what he does with the paralyzed man, not just in healing him, but also in how he does it. Despite these instructions, his fame spread such that the Pharisees and teachers of the law came so, so as to inspect his ministry. Never never perceive in the Gospels that when the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law come, that they're coming with altruistic means. The first time we see this is in John the Baptist, when he says to the Pharisees, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? And I I think the answer is, Well, well, you're doing that, John. You're you're warning them to flee. And and indeed, this is exactly what's happening in Jesus' day. The fame of what Jesus is doing is spreading throughout Israel, and they are hearing about this in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees are saying, we need to go and inspect what's taking place. We have to go and see what God is doing or whether or not this is of God. They come not to learn from Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. They come to wield authority over Jesus. In verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and law teachers or teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Luke here is foreshadowing what's going to happen by reminding us of what took place at Christ's baptism, which began our season. In his ministry, Jesus Christ healed not out of his divinity, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of the Lord, who was present at this time in this account because Christ had already received that anointing for public ministry in his baptism. As in his rejection in Nazareth, which we heard of a few weeks ago, Jesus announced his ministry. The very words out of his mouth were this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. Luke is not only foreshadowing, but he's calling us to remember that when he says the, the power of the Lord was present to heal, he means there was an awareness, as Luke is writing this account, among the disciples of what was taking place in those moments. As they were reminiscing about the story, they remembered some detail by which they felt That really felt like a significant meeting at the beginning. Luke here is calling our attention to the significance of what is going to take place. He says this word, Behold, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Luke here omits many details. We hear this story about this paralyzed man being carried by his companions, and we're totally perplexed as to how this happened. What he omits is very interesting, and I think it is significant. Just because an argument of silent, from silence can be a fallacy does not mean that all inferences from silence are fallacies. I'll explain what I mean by that. He doesn't record whether or not this paralyzed man wanted to come to Jesus. I think, think about this for a second. We, we cannot go beyond what is written, and yet we can't read in. We can't think, because the text doesn't give us any reason to think, that the man hired some f- people to carry him. If he did ask, being a paralyzed man, he could do nothing but rely on the good nature of the people who he asked. If they didn't agree, he wouldn't have come. He's paralyzed. That is, he couldn't overcome their rejection of his request. Now, we don't know if he requested, but think about it on a different side. If the man didn't request, is he going against his will? Is he being taken before Jesus without even having asked to see Jesus? If the paralytic was speaking out against the men carrying him into the presence of Christ, could he have done anything to prevent it? No. He's paralyzed. This is what it means for us, brothers and sisters, to press on the text and to see what is it saying here. Again, if this man is truly paralytic, the man could not have overcome their insistence on the matter. What is important to see is that in the text... The paralyzed man does nothing. He's paralyzed. If you are ever reading the book of Hebrews and you get to the place where it describes Melchizedek, I believe it's in the later chapters, it says that Melchizedek had neither beginning of days nor end of life. And some people infer from that that Melchizedek was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. I think that's the wrong take. I think Melchizedek was a real man. But in the text, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. We don't know where Melchizedek came from, and we don't know where where Melchizedek died. And in the scriptures, to not know where someone came from or died is highly significant because, believe it or not, the genealogies matter. They tell us where someone comes from, they tell us where they're going. This is why the scriptures. Record who begat who and where they were buried. Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from, and we don't know where he's buried. Just like Melchizedek's strange appearance and disappearance, in this text, the paralyzed man is doing nothing. Luke wants you to read it that way. In fact, I think the gospel writers, not just Luke, but also Mark as he records it, are intentionally ambiguous in order to force us to read deeply. Nevertheless, what Luke does highlight is their faithful persistence in forcing an audience with Jesus Christ. These are, as Jesus said in Matthew eleven twelve, the violent who take the kingdom of God by force. Though a crowd is separating them from Christ, they made another way. So influential has this account been in the culture of the West that even to this day in English, the phrase to tear the roof off of something means to dominate a problem or to take control of the situation. In my research, I discovered that this phrase, to tear the roof off, is very loved by American and British rappers to describe the nature of their music, the effect of their, of their art We don't ever, in our culture, take the roof off of something. We don't take the roof off of something unless we're replacing the roof. Right? Do you you see how formative this account is? Jesus is commending them for their persistence, and it is so transforming that he calls out to this man... After seeing their faith. Again, you should often be perplexed in the scriptures. Verse 20, it says, When he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Perplexingly, this man is rewarded for the faith of his companions. Although Luke does not elaborate what he records or what Christ's intention is, perhaps Luke wants us to infer This man, uh, 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 rather, this, this may indeed, this account, may indeed say something about the nature and the role of the church in her witness to the world. I think this story can be read allegorically. It's not only a true historical account, but through that account, God is wanting his people to recognize something, not only about the nature of sin, but also the calling of his people to be like these men. In this allegorical reading, the church, the men, is called to bring dead men, paralytics, before Christ for forgiveness and healing. And the reason why I think this meaning is intended is because of what Jesus says. We, the men who bring dead sinners before Jesus Christ, can do nothing about the world's paralytic condition. We cannot save at all. Only Christ can save. And yet, at the same time, we must bring them to Christ. If these men do not bring this man to Christ, this man does not, in this account, get healed. And nevertheless, the man can do nothing of his own. Neither can the men who are carrying him. They only can come to the source. Likewise, Christians who are caught in a trespass must imitate this paralytic man, should he have actually asked for for being carried We must call our brothers to carry us before Christ, confessing our faults and making no excuse or putting off obedience for another day. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, If anyone be caught in a trespass, let you who are spiritual restore such a one. Let the brothers in the church carry you to Christ, is what I would take this to mean. But what's more perplexing than the details that Luke leaves out or what he records or even an allegorical reading of what this might be a picture of for the church is that Christ's response to this paralyzed man being placed at his feet is irrational. It, it actually doesn't make any sense what Jesus does. Unlike with the fully leprous man, Jesus does not proclaim healing of his body, but rather says to him, your sins are forgiven you. The most pressing problem to this man, his friends, and all the onlookers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the crowd that was gathered, everyone would have been expecting him to declare healing to his body because of his paralysis, and Jesus ignores it completely. He says, Your sins are forgiven. We're told in in the Bible to not tell our brothers, be warmed and be filled without doing something about the fact that they have no food or clothing. We can't just say to someone, be blessed. And yet it seems like Jesus is doing that. It actually seems a little bit of a cruel joke. You've come to me for healing. You and your companions have taken great pains to open up the roof and to avoid and, and overcome this crowd which has separated us And I'm going to just tell you, you can be right with God. No, Jesus is doing something amazing in the midst of what he's doing. The full glory of Jesus's wisdom is being displayed here. Not only does Jesus forgive the sins of this man, having the right to do so, he does so to provoke the Pharisees' unbelief that he might heal them of their unbelief often when we read the Bible, we have seen already Jesus movies. And I am, as I think I said last week, I'm not a great fan of Jesus movies. And because there are so many subconscious things that are received by the director's implication, that it is not often helpful to let those be a large part of our diet as Christians. One of the things that comes through Jesus' films that I don't think is very clear from the Gospels is that Jesus rebuking the Pharisees is always done in love, and it's always done desiring that they would be healed. And sometimes when we watch Jesus' movies, certain actors and directors portray things as if there's just this great battle, and there's no love in the midst of the warfare. All real warfare has love in it. It wants God's righteousness. This is what Jesus is doing. He is doing something to this man, proclaiming the forgiveness of his sins and forgiving them, being God alone. He is, he is doing something so that the Pharisees' unbelief would be provoked to the point of encounter. In verse 21, it says, "...the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone?" When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? There's that heart and head connection, isn't it? When he perceived those thoughts. The scribes here are presuming Jesus Christ to be a mere man, and therefore unable to forgive, because forgiveness of sins is God's prerogative. These Pharisees are only partly wrong. It is indeed God's prerogative alone to forgive sins. Man cannot declare forgiveness of sins to his fellow man apart from in the name of God or in the name of Christ. But what the Pharisees do not understand is Christ is more than a mere man. They grumble against themselves or amongst themselves quietly in a private manner because it says, as Luke records, Jesus perceived their thoughts. He, it doesn't say that Jesus heard them They were discussing amongst themselves, kind of like if you've ever heard something in a sermon that you've disagreed with, and you whisper to your friend who's sitting with you, well, that's not in the Bible, or or, that doesn't sound right. That's what they were doing. They were discussing amongst themselves in a private way that Christ could not hear with His ears, and yet it says that He perceived what they were saying in their hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What an amazing thing that Jesus is doing. And immediately he, the man, rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus's display of power here left them without any doubt of his ability to forgive sins. And we likewise have no room, therefore, for doubt that Christ is able to totally save and deliver. The man who was fully leprous was immediately fully clean. Understanding how this passage speaks to us, we must recognize that these people, this paralytic man, this fully leprous man are pictures of what it looks like to be in the body, to be sons and daughters of Adam. We are fully corrupted. We are totally corrupted. Not meaning that we are as evil as we can be, but rather that sin has touched all parts of who we are. It has affected and marred our thinking processes and our loves. Our our bodies are under the influence of sin and death and the curse that Adam unleashed. Sin has touched every part of who we are. And unlike these men who carry the paralytic, we are the paralytic. We are the fully leprous person. We often, even as Christians, do not recognize the totalizing nature of sin, and we don't recognize, therefore, our great need for Christ to pronounce cleansing over us. And yet, though we be touched by sin in all ways, Christ saves in all ways. We must after coming to Christ, must not resign ourselves with areas of sinful sinful influence. There's a great conversation taking place in the body of Christ right now, and by conversation I mean a falling away and an apostasy of maintaining that people can come to Christ and be healed by him and yet persist in clinging to that which corrupted them. Claiming identities that are founded upon their sexual proclivities and their idolatries, there's a great understanding of the. There's a great lack of understanding of the point of sanctification. You shall be holy, for your Father in heaven is holy. Jesus told his disciples that. We must be convinced not only that we are fully leprous, brothers and sisters, but if you will, you can make me clean. And then we must hear Jesus say to us, I will be cleansed. Jesus told his disciples, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. A man who's washed and bathed only has to wash his feet again. It is true that we, from time to time, are caught in trespasses. We, not, we dare not cling to a false doctrine that being Christians, we can still love our sin and still permit that sin to reign over us. Just as God warned Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. God expected Cain to draw on grace and master his sin, and he didn't. Nevertheless, we must not resign ourselves to allow sinful influence. Christ did not make this man taking him from 100% leprosy to 1% leprosy, or telling him that you can occasionally go and touch the leprous things. I'm firmly convinced that after the talk that he would have had with the priest, the priest would have then given him instructions to make sure that all the garments and the parts of his house, as the Levitical code tells us, that all of them that were affected with that leprosy had to be burned and taken away and ensured that the leprosy would not come back. We must not think that we may return to crying unclean. Yes, we still sin. We may not continue in it. In First John, we hear that all that is born of God's seed cannot persist in sinning because he is unable to, because every seed brings forth after its own kind. Because God's word has been proclaimed, Jesus says, you are clean because of the word that I speak. Nevertheless, you must wash your feet. Likewise, we often do not recognize our inability to come to Christ apart from his grace. Like the paralytic, we must recognize that we are brought before Christ by his people, the church. We must come to Christ for complete healing. Therefore, it's my charge and my call to you this morning that just as the leprous man and the paralytic man, let us recognize our inability to cleanse ourselves, but instead come to Christ to receive complete deliverance and healing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that his glory was not just displayed in what he did but in the attitudes and the the manifold works of grace that he was doing in the midst of those healings and through those healings. We thank you that Luke has faithfully preserved what your son did in time and in history, and that by his grace, by by Christ's grace, we might come to him. We thank you that your word was given that we would believe. And Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to not say to ourselves that oh, we're Christians, we're, we've, we've been fully cleansed if we are still letting leprosy live in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would give cleansing and a, and a purifying influence over our hearts and our minds. Not only that you would give us love for your word, but that you would help us to desire righteousness in our lives. Father, we ask for full communion with Jesus Christ and that you would help us to to truly understand what sanctification is, that we would never return to crying unclean, but that we would know we've been touched by you, that you were willing to cleanse us, and you said to us, be cleansed. And we were. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.